I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, any circular foods in the snack bowls for us this time? Yeah, I've, I went to Poundland and I, I got all these, they're called the Aldiva or Aldivar Happy Wheels. And they were a pound for 10. Um, and it, what they're like is it is if a Burton's Wagon Wheel and a Tunnock's Chocolate Snowball had a child. That is, that's pretty much what they'd look like. And I think if that was the case, then both parents would be slightly disappointed and would secretly blame the other for the child's inadequacies. Because um, it's a bit like chewing a polystyrene ceiling tile that's been smeared in brown paste and then pebble-dashed with dandruff. Oh, that. <laughs> oh, that. But, that but apart from that, they're quite nice. <laughs> so you're lucky you're not here. I've had to eat 10 of them. I've only got two left now. That's how bad they are. Ten pence per item, that's a very good value food, isn't it? It is. Well, well a friend of mine always says that Waitrose should have the, should have the slogan reassuringly expensive, and I think these are nerve-wrackingly cheap. <laughs> and the, the Tunnock's shortage goes on, actually, so that you mentioned Tunnock's there. Yeah, well, they, they closed down the factory, didn't they? They've, yeah. they've, they've, they've stopped production. I, I bought a, a one packet of Tunnock's um, caramel wafers, but I'm eating them very gradually. I've only had one out of the packet so far. I'm going to have to make them make them last several months. Oh, I could put them on eBay, actually. Yeah, yeah, put them on eBay. eBay. <laughs> put yeah. them on eBay one at a time. There's now a Buckfast shortage in Scotland, which is a particular problem in the West where it's drunk a bit more. And a friend of mine was in the post office where it, that sells Buckfast near him recently in Edinburgh, and two women came in 
that had driven all the way from Motherwell, which is about 25 miles, to find some Buckfast, and then didn't buy it because it was in half bottles, and apparently it tastes different in half bottles to the usual full bottle. So there's a lesson for you in something or other. All sorts of wrong going on there. Well, at least it got him out of the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Harry, any other lockdown progress or dissent? I noticed on Twitter that you'd had the whisk out. I had. I, I, made, I made some Zabayone, uh, which is a sort of... Um, I think I was inspired. I watched a very nice Italian documentary about John Charles, and I think I was inspired by that. The sight of um, Omar Savori inspired me to make some Zabayone, which involves whisking up, as you, as you, all, as you both know, involves whisking up um, egg yolks with masala over a bain-marie. And Darren, my girlfriend, said to me, "What do, are you going to use the electric whisk?" But I was like, I was too manly, so I used a balloon whisk. It took me fifteen minutes to whisk it up into a froth. As and, it were. and you can't type anymore. I can't type. I can't do anything. My, my one arms, my arms, my right arms, completely paralysed. What about you, Andy? Any lockdown developments there? Has Mini Neville Southall got any views on test, track, and trace policy? Uh, no, we share the same views on the government's approach to the crisis in general, really, so we don't need to discuss them. But um, I am about to bid on the other Neville Southall Corinthian figure, the Cup final 1995 Neville. Um, it's on eBay 99p at the moment. So he might have different views. I'd be astonished if he does, um, although he's, he's 10 years on from the previous Neville Southall, of course. And other than that, no, I keep seeing the same fox on my walk to Tesco's. His early morning routine <laughs> involves him stalking pigeons in the Tesco's car park and then peeing on cars, which is a, a nice. <laughs> surprise for the shoppers when they come back and what's that smell do we buy ammonia you know um i was going to buy some clippers but i still haven't bought i was, I was going to buy the pair of clippers that harry uh, advised me to get but still haven't got them for fear i might mess it up and that they look like a, a molting parrot or more than i do already well i've still not shaved i was going for a sort of socrates look but it's turned out a bit more Derek hales I always thought there was a period when lots of footballers had beards, but when I was searching for that reference there, Derek Hales to look knowledgeable, I'm not so sure that's true. I thought of it as being sort of the mid-70s. No, well, there was a long period from, I don't know, probably post-World War One to the 60s when even players who had moustaches here were unusual, um, not so much in Southern Europe or Latin America, but I suppose just reflecting the social trends at the time. So any British player who did have a moustache in team photos looked quite raffish, but like a fancy man, you know, like maybe a <laughs> divorcee with a colourful past kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, George Hardwick, your George Hardwick of Middlesbrough yeah. was moustachioed, wasn't he? Gil Merrick, England goalkeeper of the 50s was as well. Um, Biz, I think, Rowney really came in with footballers in the 70s. And if you look at team photos from maybe the end of the 60s, also this strange period when a lot of footballers had these kind of droopy moustaches. A basic moustache with a bit on either end, you know, that down the side as well. Like It's like a delayed influence, yeah, of, of spaghetti westerns or of Sergeant Pepe or Beatles with about three years on from that, you know. Also, you should look up, if people may know about them already, Abe van der Ban, Dutch fullback of the 70s, who had a handlebar moustache throughout his playing career and has, has still got it. I saw a YouTube interview with him from three or four years ago. He's still, it's obviously his trademark thing. He still has a handlebar moustache. If you look at photos of Portuguese teams from the mid to late 70s, and you've got plenty of time to do this now, so don't claim you haven't, um, they're all massively hairy. Like half the players in the team look like Robinson Crusoe. Whether this was a reaction to the revolution in Portugal in 1974, you know, when the dictatorship was overthrown and people literally let their hair down. But um, <laughs> check it out and you would Portuguese team photos mid to late seventies. You got quite a shock. Yeah, were, I, I was wondering. It was sort of in the mid seventies, there were a few bearded, but I wasn't sure if they actually grew beards deliberately, or if it was just a period when their sideburns got so long they just joined up. 
I think there's maybe a pre, it's maybe a bit of a pre-season thing sometimes. I think team photos, you know, when the players have maybe got a bit of, of weight on them as well, and maybe they're unshaven when they came back to training. Maybe some some managers probably disapproved of beards. Frank Lampard Senior always had a beard, didn't he? Or the real Frank Lampard, as I know him, he, he always had a beard. The provisional Frank Lampard, as opposed to the continuity Frank Lampard. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, knowing down as we do, that the the player that we, with his beard, he probably it probably most resembles from the seventies, probably Trevor Hockey. I would imagine the combative Welsh midfielder. Who I'm pretty sure that he was when Trevor Hockey played out in. I have some vague idea that when he played in the North American Soccer League, I think for San Diego Jaws, they celebrated his abrasiveness by bringing him on the field in a Sherman tank. Which uh, you know we could do that with Dan, couldn't we? You could come on, you could have the sound effect of a Sherman tank, Dan, to introduce yourself. That sounds ideal and apt. I think Trevor Hockey had once had a car with like velvet or velour bonnet. That was something. <laughs> a velour so you could, so like, bonnet. You could, so like, yeah, you could sort of ruffle his car. <laughs> There's a story about him showing it to the Sheffield United players, and then because you know, he was obviously quite hard guy, they weren't going to laugh at him, sort of thing. But some kind of yeah, some kind of weird material on his bonnet, anyway. <laughs> Trevor Hockey in his velour bonnet sounds like a children's story almost. <laughs> it does, or or a band from the sixties, late sixties. Yes, no, no, a band. Yeah, no, a band. That's better. Actually. Sort of psychedelic band. Yeah, a couple of them left to join Hawkwind. <laughs> Cross, uh, David Cross, who also played for West Ham on a beard as well, didn't he? He played for Norwich and Billy Bonds from that West Ham. Billy team, Bonds, so. certainly. Yeah, he was a long, t- he was a long time beard wearer. In the in the latter day, in the nineties, I remember Alan Cork growing a beard. Maybe when he was playing for Sheffield United, connected to being on a cup run or something like that. One of those, I'm not going to shave until we're out of the cup type things. Oh, he did, didn't he? And it, it gave him a sort of Victorian look. Yeah, in fact, more like the look that players now or kind of suppose young men have you know the, the sort of neck beards that even some footballers have that seems to have spread around Europe actually though I think I guess I get the impression that trend has kind of died out a bit now that really bushy beard that yeah I was thinking that with, with Alexi Lalas you know that when he first appeared people all laughed at him because but actually he was basically 15 years ahead of his time wasn't he in so many ways <laughs> in so many ways yeah but he was like a character from Portlandia but in 1994 As ever, I've been enjoying the WSC letters page, this time in issue 399. Which letters did you particularly enjoy, Andy? Uh, well, one letter writer mentions uh, it, there's a theme that we've had uh, a popular topic recently, people who support two clubs and don't expect them to meet and how to cope when it happens. So one letter writer mentioned seeing his non-league team, Hayes, as they, were, as they then were, plays league team Fulham in the FA Cup in the early 90s. And Hayes won 2-0. I was at that game at Craven Cottage on a Friday night and one of the Hayes goals I remember was scored by a, a veteran central defender there's called Reg Leather, which I thought is a fantastic <laughs> non-league name. Um, the other letter I like this month, um, or, or I like them all of course, but the other was I'm thinking of um, also non-league related, um, that letter we had recently saying, you know, is there any ground that doesn't have a special atmosphere under the lights? And somebody wrote in and mentioned East Ham United used to play in the Essex Senior League who had very low floodlights which cast a sort of giant shadow on the pitch and made it very hard to follow the match once they switched on. Flood darks, somebody called them apparently in the letter. And we've since had another letter about that 
the next issue about East Ham United's surprise connections to a well-known indie band of the 1990s, which I can't reveal now. You'll have to read the next issue of WC to find out who that was. Ooh. And Harry, what about you on the letters page? Well, well I, I ignore the, the cruel dig at Middlesbrough from a reader in Harrogate. <laughs> I, I like the fact he, he was saying that uh, of, uh, about those grounds with floodlights that don't have a special atmosphere, as just mentioned. But he put Ayrson Park, but with no qualification, which I really like. <laughs> just, just a couple of lines. no reasoning, just just Ayrson Park. That's right. There was a very good letter about Mirandinha, which was about the fact that when he played at Old Trafford, he was for Newcastle. He was complaining about every pass, that the passes didn't go where he wanted them to do. And he was always complaining it to his teammates. And the sort of bloke behind me said, he wants his tea stirred with the left hand, that lad, which I thought was really good. And then there was a letter about Paul Cooper as well, the um, oh, yes. the Ipswich goalkeeper who had um, was sort of had chewing gum thrown at him. And, and, the, and I asked a friend of mine, Julian Germain, who's a, a lifelong Ipswich fan, and he said that he thought it was because Paul Cooper chewed during the games and he didn't like the brand of chewing gum that the club provided him with and he only <laughs> wanted Wrigley's. I don't know why he couldn't just buy his own, why the club had to provide it for him. But that, And he says that's why the fans threw him, threw him the chewing gum. Um, and it was also there was, a, there was a very good letter about uh, Nunhead's uh, changing rooms and I'm particularly yeah. impressed by that. It was a man from called Mike Moore who lives in Isaacburn, a very small village in Weirdale. Uh, quite near me, with a population of 112. So I think probably with Mike, Mike Moore there, it probably has a greater density of when Saturday comes readers than any other community in Britain. That's great. That's a really good subject. That's something we can, we need to go into a bit more. <laughs> you need to look at it, Andy. You need a, you need a sort of a big map of Britain with, the, with you know, the uh, percentage of WSC readers per community. A bit like one of those coronavirus maps I need to do with WC yeah, sort of readers. Per cap- per how WC readers are spreading out around. <laughs> That's the right, per capita charts. Andy, issue 399 of When Saturday Comes is out now. What's in the magazine this time? Uh, well, we've got a regular feature on uh, football suspended, um, being suspended, which um, includes a look at how Liverpool and Spurs both attempted to furlough their staff and back down after a big backlash, and also how, how Italy and Spain are planned to restart. And also at the absolute chaos, which I'm sure you've heard a lot more about down in Scotland, mm-hmm. where there was a bodge vote of whether or not to cancel the season, and now it has been cancelled with, among other things, um, Hearts being relegated and Celtic confirmed as champions for the second nine in a row, also achieved by Rangers, of course. Um, we've got an article by um, Mike Bailey, regular contributor, looking at how football teams in the former mining communities in Yorkshire have carried on going, although, of course, the mines are no longer there, um, mainly through maintaining community links and how that approach is maybe something that clubs could learn from in trying to survive the effects of the shutdown. Um, we've got a regular object lessons column. is about a, a silent film of a Hartlepool match, Hartlepool v Millwall 1959, that was shown at a public event in Hartlepool called the Daily Express Sports Inquest with a panel of experts commenting on the footage, which included the, uh, the grandfather of the writer of the article, Ed Parkinson, uh, who was club secretary at the time. And Ed's got the um, the film which he had trans- uh, uh, converted to uh, to a disc at some point of the match though no actual film of his of his granddad on the panel and we've also got more serious an article this month by Swindon fan Liam Walsh on the recent death of his father and of one of his sons both of whom he go to football with and how uh, obviously the impact um, of their deaths had on his family and also on his 
experience of being a football fan because they're people he went to games with and um it's a tough article to read but uh, extremely extremely well done i think yeah very beautifully written isn't it and harry what did you write about this time well well, i write about um i I was always quite fascinated by the fact that that mick mccarthy was said that mick mccarthy's father founded england's first hurling team (laughs) and i I always sort of wondered who they played and I, i sort of imagined 11 irishmen sort of wandering around uh barnsley with sticks on a Saturday afternoon asking if anyone wanted to have a go. Um, I think I was a bit fascinated by that because because when I was at, when I was at um, primary school, my primary school, my form teacher, Mrs Miller, was from the from the Highlands of Scotland and her and her husband founded North Allerton Shinty Club, which I think were the only shinty club in England, which is a kind of Highland version of, of hurling, I guess, or hockey. And so we played it at school. We played shinty at school, but obviously the school team, there was no one for us to play. So I was writing a bit about that, but really about the Sheffield Club, who also were founded the first football club in England. And then no other football club was founded for three years. Um, so the three years was effectively, I imagine there was no one for them to play and they just turned up and, you know, scanned the horizon hoping that someone would. But then the second football club that was founded was Hallam, which was fortunately also in Sheffield which was, you know, that was a, a stroke of good fortune for the Se- the Sheffield club because it could just as easily have been in Plymouth, couldn't it? And anything else in the magazine that you noticed and enjoyed this time? I, I enjoyed the Paolo one-chop um, photo feature um, because I always remember Paolo because I remember in the, in the um, was it the 2002 World Cup, Barry Davis d- developed a sort of strange, almost schoolgirl crush on him. And every time he commentated on a on a Costa Rica game, he made this kind of cooing and ooing and ahhing sounds like a, a sort of teenage girl looking at a poster of David Cassidy in 1972. As you can imagine, our, our, our sales are, are down massively in, in high street shops. So um, if you usually buy in the shops, you could subscribe instead. We've got various options on wc.co.uk. Um, subscribers also get access to our complete digital archive, which goes back to 1986. And you could search out, amongst other things, the angry letter we received from Chris Waddle's agent issue 20 something can't remember which issue is in but look out for that um you could also get the wc 400 t-shirt designed by uh, david squires golden cartoonist and uh, the 400th issue with various features relating to the fact that it's the 400th issue will uh, hopefully be out in midsummer Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Glen Buck cherry pickers, penalty spots, Bobby Mims, and it's landed on one club men. Andy, who or what does that bring to mind for you? Well, the first name I'm sure will occur to most people is John Trollope, um, sw- uh, the record, hold, uh, um, record holder for league appearances with one club, Swindon Town fullback. Real name, Nor- real first name, Norman. Uh, Norman Trollope to sound like a sitcom character. He also went um, the full distance as one club for, uh, for a one club man, but also later becoming the Swindon manager, um, as did um, uh, another one club man became a manager, Roy Sproson, Port Vale, also a defender. Um, he, he was the previous record holder for one uh, appearances one club, I think. Um, played for Port Vale from 1950 to 1972, but um, and was manager after that, but never went back. 
after he got sacked in 1978. He lived for another 20 years after that, but he never returned to the club. Actually, I think Jimmy Dickinson of Portsmouth may have been the, not him, not Royce Portsmouth, was the record holder. Also, the claim manager of Portsmouth, and when they were having financial problems, went down to do Division 4 and was club secretary later. But I think with any sort of club legend, it's a sad moment if they get sacked as manager, even if they're not doing well. It must be difficult, I think, for the supporters to sort of to call for the sacking of a a sort of beloved mm. player. Um, there's also players who were at clubs for a long time but hardly played at all. There were a couple of players at Ipswich, the Bobby Robson era, as manager. There was uh, Laurie Civil, goalkeeper. We had an article about him once in WSE entitled Civil Service, who um, first played March 1970, played, played last match February 1984. 143 games, including one season when he's first choice. So if you take out those matches, he played just over 100 games in 13 years. Um, but was kept on. And also, in the same era, a midfield player called Tommy Park, and he made his first start in the Charity Shield against Forest, 1975-0 defeat. And he he only played 70 league games for Ipswich in 14 years, which is kind of a weird career, really. I mean, he was helped, perhaps, by there being continuity at Ipswich. There were only two managers there in that time, Bobby Robson and then Bobby Ferguson, who'd been Robson's assistant. So, strangely, it's like they rated him enough to keep him around, but not to actually play him. It's kind of and a maybe, strange... And no one noticed him, maybe. He just hung around a bit and, and no one really clocked him. Yeah, and he maybe just probably just need to get a contract and you'd somebody just get somebody to sign the contract a couple of times and you get another five-year deal, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> it is a strange one because you think... I mean, he played a few games on, on loan with other clubs, but I mean, he was there till he was about 30. He was constantly playing in the reserves. And there's also a quite poignant career of uh, John Farmer, who's a Stoke goalkeeper... Had one season as the regular before they bought Gordon Banks, and he was Banks' understudy for a few seasons. Then Banks was out injured after his car crash. In fact, didn't play for Stoke again. Farmer played regularly for two years. Thought must have thought great. He was only in his mid twenties then. Great, I'm now established. Then Stoke bought Peter Shelton. Then he got stuck behind him as a reserve before dropping into non-league when he's still only in his twenties. By all accounts, he's a pretty good goalkeeper, but unlucky that he obviously wasn't quite as good as either Gordon Banks or Peter Shilton, but but played his whole league career at Stoke. In all of that, I can't stop thinking about the irony of a man named Trollope being so loyal, because Trollope <laughs> feels like a word that was regularly used on Emmerdale to signify a tarty lady, I think. Or well, am I wrong I, I, about I, I, that? I just seem to remember I, that, that word. I wonder <laughs> if anybody ever shouted anything to that effect on, uh, to him during Swindon league matches. You'd hope not, but I think, I think they might I wonder what you, I wonder what his nickname was. Probably tr- Trollopy, probably. <laughs> Trollopy, yeah. <laughs> Harry, what about you? One club men. Well, I'm, well, I'm thinking of uh, some of the some of the players, particularly. I think in um, you know in, in the days of the maximum wage, there didn't seem much incentive for people to move, did they? But also, some of the players had had jobs in the town as well, like proper jobs. Like I think one of uh, the man who holds the. Uh, the club record appearances for Middlesbrough, Tim Williamson, the goalkeeper, whose actual name was Reginald Garnet Williamson, and he was called Tim because he was very he was very small for a goalkeeper. But he he was a draftsman uh, who worked at Teesside Bridge um, during the week and just kept gold at weekends. And he was a bit of a he was a sort of if he'd been um, if he'd been South American, I think he'd been called El Loco. Um, because he used to like to dribble the ball out from the penalty area, often lobbing the ball over the opposition attackers and then playing a pass out to one of his one of his teammates. And he actually scored a couple of goals from the penalty spot as well. It wasn't called El Loco because, of course, he wasn't born in South America. He was born in North Ormsby. Um, known, known on Teesside as Doggy 
for some reason that it's probably best not to inquire. I was going to say, yeah, we wouldn't have <laughs> too far. And he, that. he played. I mean, he played for England when he was only twenty-one, but disastrously dropped a cross into his own goal when he was credited with an own goal. Um, but yeah, so he 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 was a sort of player, a great great favourite. My grandfather, who always claimed that Tim Williamson, that what he would do is if he he thought a shot, if a shot looked like it was going near enough, he would just he would pull the crossbar down so that the ball went over the bar instead of into the net, which I don't know if that was true or not. But I do remember that goalkeepers often used to, when they used to run on, they often used to hang on the crossbar for a while, didn't they? The centre of the crossbar in, in the olden times. And I wondered if actually they were pulling, they were bending bending it a bit to, to make the goal smaller. But anyway, yeah, so Tim Williamson, so he's he kind of stayed on, I think, really, as I say, because he was working in the town. And then some play. I think in Italy, players... There's been a lot of players who didn't move around in Italy, surprisingly, possibly because of a certain degree of kind of regional enmities in Italy. Um, so, you know, sort of Antonioni, Giancarlo Antonioni, he spent all his career in Italy at Fiorentina. He did go to Switzerland a bit later on. Um, and then Francesco Totti, who spent 25 years with Roma, and when asked about it, replied, I have cheated on every girlfriend I have ever had, but I would never cheat on Roma. In a manner that suggests that was somehow made him a good person. Uh, it was a bit puzzling. You'd think he, he's cheated. As soon as he said that, you'd think, no, he's cheated on them, hasn't he? Yeah, that's he right. Unless you had actually cheated. Yeah. And then I think some players have been almost like emotionally blackmailed to stay at a club. You know, I mean, I think uh, the best example of that is probably Uwe Saylor, the, the great um, German player who spent all his career at Hamburg. And... In the early 60s, a lot of German players left left Germany because obviously there was more money to be made elsewhere. I mean, you know, sort of Karl-Heinz Schnellinger, um, Herm, Helmut Haller and Albert Brawls went off to play in Italy and Helmut Rahn went to play in Holland. And in 1962, Helenio Herrera tried to sign Sailor for Inter Milan, offering a huge sum of money, I think about £15,000 a year salary, at a time when... Johnny Haynes, who was the highest paid player in Britain, was getting £5,000 a year. So it was a huge amount of money. And there was a sort of big clamour in Hamburg for our Uwe to stay. And the dean of Hamburg University actually wrote Uwe Saylor a letter in which he said, if you resist this temptation, that would be a radiant signal giving people pause to reflect on their own behaviour, which kind of suggests that if Uwe Saylor had chosen to go to Milan, Hamburg would have fallen into a kind of moral turpitude that had never been known before, which is quite a pressure on Uwe Saylor, really. But anyway, he decided to stay. And he, he did spend all his career at Hamburg, except he did play one game. He retired in 1972. And then in 1976, he worked for Adidas. And he was over in Ireland on business. And Cork Celtic asked him if he would play a game for them. And he assumed it was some sort of charity testimonial game. And so he agreed, but it actually turned out it was a League of Ireland fixture against Shamrock Rovers. So he did play a single game for Cork Celtic in the League of Ireland, which is a quite extraordinary tale. Well, staying on the island of Ireland, one Noel Bailey played for Linfield for 22 years, a thousand games. But the notable thing about that for me is that he was a sweeper, but played number 11, which confused me immensely. But also, I don't know what number a sweeper should really play because it's a lesser spotted position now, isn't it? Six, maybe. And on that note, do you think there were typical one club men positions? Because in my head, they were always the centre half that ended up 
becoming captain just by hanging around enough. Yeah, central defenders or full-backs. There are the two Bristol strikers in the 50s, Jeff Bradford and John Attia. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, who played for Bristol Rovers and Bristol City and both played for England as strikers. Both played a huge number of games for the clubs, but neither of them ever played in the first division. They both um, turned down regular offers to move up, but were both sort of stalwarts. But mostly, yeah, I tend to think central defender there's a Leicester player not strictly speaking a one club man because he did play a season at the end of his career at Northampton but I would think of the typical one one club man called Alan Woolett who was a sort of utility player at Leicester mainly played in defensive positions I remember somebody saying they went to his testimonial match and at the end of it, it sort of seemed fitting because the sort of kind of thing that happened to you as a sort of a bit part player is that the, the crowd cheered him off the pitch but they took him over to the wrong side where the, <laughs> and they had to chair him all the way back over to over to the right side, so he could, so they could get down to the dressing rooms and stuff. And that, it felt like that sort of was a kind of a fitting end to his career at Leicester. Harry, we always salute their loyalty, particularly to the hometown clubs. But I sometimes wonder if they wanted to get away, really, and they sort of glanced out of the team bus at all the other towns they were going to and thought, "Oh, that could have been me," but they couldn't quite leave. It's just one of those cruel stories. One thing: some of them could have left. I think you know. I think we've got this far without using the word stalwart, which I'm which I'm a bit disappointed. I'm disappointed you haven't said stalwart, Dan. So I'm saying it for you. Um, the club stalwart because I was thinking I think Andy might have been in there I remember uh, going to a game Fulham against Grimsby Town in 1991 and John McDermott was playing then he was a young he was a sort of young right back who many Grimsby fans thought was going to be sold for lots and lots of money um, but he stayed at the club for his entire career played there for 20 years um, and was the Radio Humberside Sports Personality of the Year as well. So that maybe maybe the thought of winning that award was what kept him there. Yeah, it, was his, it was his holy grail. But in that game, Fulham versus Grimsby, I mentioned that because on the opposite side was almost like the sort of the anti-stalwart who was Phil Stant was playing for Fulham, who managed to play for 30, I think he managed 19 clubs in 22 years. So he was a sort of he was like the complete opposite of John McDermott. Was that Phil Stant who'd been in the army? Was that right? He'd been That's in the right. Army yeah, he was a he was a veteran, I think. And he had he to was buy himself. Very red faced. I remember whenever he played. I remember him seeing a play. Yes, for I think someone once described him as being all shin from the head downwards. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you chosen this time? Uh, I've gone for Ole Ole Vor Eve Ve by Teo de Vries et Het Coeur de Blau Witten, the Blue and White Choir. This is a FC Eindhoven, also known as Eve Ve, with the other team in Eindhoven celebrating getting promoted to Dutch First Division in 1975. Haven't been away for 18 years. They went down again two years later and have been in the second division ever since. Um, it's one of my favourite football topics. It's something we cover in WC. There's about other teams in cities where there's one or sometimes two really well-known teams. And this is the other team in Eindhoven. We had an article about them once in, um, in WC by podcast listener Ernst Bowes on how AVV were the last Dutch champions before the creation of the National League when the league was decided by... They had regional leagues and the playoffs. So if they'd won it a year later, they could have played in the European Cup. They were the, the, the last Dutch champions before the European Cup started. And they've still, to this date, not yet played in Europe. But at least they're still around anyway. <laughs> 
als er weg zijn onze jongens niet te slaan. And Harry, what's your choice? Yeah, well, I mentioned Uwe Sailor, and I've gone for Das Abscheid Lied für Uwe, the farewell song for Uwe from 1972, and it's by Hamburg SV and George Martin's marching band, which it says on Football 45 is the real George Martin, who was the fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth Beatle, depending on how you count. <laughs> And if that is the case, and I have to say, he hasn't really added any of his magic to the football song because it basically starts off with some standard terrace clapping. There's a bit of a fanfare and a hoo-ha, and then it just dissolves into a kind of a rowdy version of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. Sung in English for no apparent reason. On the back of the record sleeve, as it works on the website, the squad are all dressed in their civilian clothes and they look like the lads that the lads from Alfred are saying pet fight on a night out in the, in the bar that Oz, Oz wants to chin. So, yeah, somewhere in, somewhere in the Reaper barn, <laughs> Jimmy Nail is lurking. And that probably would, but it would, think of how much worse it would have been if Uwe Sailor had gone to Milan. Maybe, maybe this was the real George Martin, there's just an unused backing track from Sergeant Pepper. It, it's, it's something like that. I don't know, where, I don't know as I say, it, it, the, the George Martin's marching band, they did make an album as well, but I can't remember what it was called because I did, I did look it up to try and find out if it was the George Martin. But I don't know, just got lost in the mind. It was just too much information. From his point of view, he is the real George Martin. My own choice this time is Go For It, the Coventry 1987 FA Cup final song in which they of course beat Spurs 3-2, captained by the bearded Brian Kilkline, formerly mentioned on this podcast a few times I think, and the classic one club man in goal, Steve Agrizovic, who in fact played for four clubs, so I don't know if that still counts. Harking back to another topic we recently discussed, on the sleeve they're wearing the blue and white shirts as usual, sponsored by Granada Social Clubs, which is a brilliant sponsor. Yeah, well, that is nice, yeah.
Now, every month I'm going to chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, John Gibbons of Liverpool's Anfield Rap joined me. So the Anfield Rap um, started as a, as a fan podcast in 2011. Uh, back then it was just once a week. There was a, a website that I'd written stuff on there as well, but it was mainly a once a week podcast on a Monday, which was talking about you know the weekend's action. Um, it's sort of grown from there. We got off at the radio show uh, on Radio City Talking Liverpool. Uh, and now we've got a subscription service, so we're doing about 15 podcasts a week, um, all the stuff you, you can imagine. So next game, last game, bit of fun stuff. Uh, we get really good interviews as well, which is nice. Uh, we've got started doing more and more video, uh, which I don't really get too involved with, but it uh, looks really good. Um and so yeah, it's grown into a into a nice little little business, and you know we've got we've got quite a few subscribers sort of around the world. Obviously, sort of Liverpool's global fan base helps us, but it's nice to be employing people in Liverpool and and doing yeah, what, what's your passion um, and turning what was a hobby into a job. I think the biggest thing is is being able to employ people. You know, we're on fourteen full time staff now, and and you're you're always hopeful you can sort of scratch a living yourself out of these things. But the idea of having you know, our own office in Liverpool City Centre, our own studio that we've built ourselves and, and other things. And, you know, we're paying a lot of our contributors as well, our kind of people. So there's another source of 20-odd people who, who you know, were able to kind of, you know, even if it's just paying for the season to get it's a nice thing to do. And so the Anfield Raps are a real mix of, of people who, who were sort of, you know, aspiring journalists and, and people like me who, who were just people who went the match and, you know, I hadn't even written for a fanzine or anything. You know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't. You know, I, I used to enjoy reading them, and, and Liverpool have had some great fanzines over the years. But I wasn't, you know, ever kind of. It was, it wasn't a career I wanted to sort. I was looking to sort of get into. Really, I was quite happy for footy to be the thing I did on the weekend with me mates, like most of us, and and that's like the case for I'd say over half the people who were who were involved in the Anfield app, really. But. Basically, I knew Neil uh, from from Spirit of Shankly, and, and Spirit of Shankly's got an interesting kind of part in pulling everyone together. Um, so we have got Hicks and Gillette to thank for something, <laughs> you know, in terms of the Liverpool's fan base. But basically, they started it. A few of them started it, and I listened to the first one and just thought it was great to then just have asked Neil to let me on until he um, until he relented. You mentioned fanzines there. Do you see the podcast movement as being a development of zine culture? Yeah, very much, very much. And we're lucky in Liverpool is that that's how we've been seen as well. So it's, the, um, you know, I know for for some other kind of fan channels, if you like, they've had some, you know, kickback from from the supporter base and from, from, from football clubs as well. We've been really lucky in that A, Liverpool Football Club have been really supportive of us over, over the years. And also, you know, when I get when I get stopped at games or, or, or whatever, you know, people are always kind of positive about, about what we do. And, you know, podcasts aren't, aren't for everyone necessarily, but in terms of what we're trying to do, I think people do support it. And I think for Scousers, we've always been keen to tell our own story. And look, that might not be a specifically Liverpool thing, um, but it is definitely a Liverpool thing that, that you know, we, we'd rather just tell our own stories and we'd rather, you know, mm. control our own narrative in, in kind of what's going on. There's a, bit of a, a mistrust I would say of other people coming in and, mm. and, and just describing kind of what's the, the, the Liverpool kind of scene if you like we'd, we'd, we'd almost rather do it ourselves so when people do do it themselves and you know get up 
off the, off the backside and, and have a go. Uh, you know, we're, we're, people in Liverpool are always, you know, supportive and well in. I mean, unless you do too well. Once you are starting to start doing too well, then everyone <laughs> kicks off. But that's another that's another story. That's just the north, I think. <laughs> yeah. Once you move to Cheshire, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we want people to do well, but not too well. Um, you mentioned having a lot of listeners abroad. How much interest comes from Liverpool fans abroad and whereabouts are you talking about? It's mainly English-speaking countries, to be honest with you, just because, um, just because, it, as I say, that the business really is podcast and we all talk quite quickly, <laughs> and so, um, so it's it's English-speaking countries really. So all the sorts of jokes about Scandinavia don't really uh, apply to us. It's it's Ireland, uh, America. Uh, and Australia basically um, and it's partly in terms of American Australia it's partly sort of expats people who've moved over there but still want that connection so they miss going to the game they miss going to the pub after and chatting about the game and, and we can sort of provide that but also you know new fans you know especially in America I found with American supporters of Liverpool once they're in they're like they, they jump in two feet and they want to know everything and so we can you know help I guess educate them uh, if that's not too strong a word about about the club and what it's all about. We do bits of historical stuff, obviously, um, and and you know, so so I think some really, really nice feedback we got we get is that you know they're learning more about the city and the club, but also feel a bit closer because um, I mean the internet's brought the world closer as in it? it's, it's a smaller place because of it and so you know the idea if you're if you're in california or whatever and, you, and you're watching the game in your house at seven o'clock in the morning but then afterwards you know we can transport you to a to a pub less than a mile well less than half a mile from from liverpool from the ground which is where we do our post-match content and you feel like you're there with those people and you're celebrating a big win is is a nice thing to be able to offer and it wasn't necessarily what we set out to do um but it has it has been sort of what we've been able to do you mentioned that the club have been good in terms of access and things that's been all the way through has it it's quite a good relationship with the club I wouldn't say all the way through. We had to work hard for the relationship, but I don't necessarily begrudge that. I just think that, you know, if you want to be sort of trusted, you know, then, then you know, it's going to be some work. And, and But now it's really good. Look, I remember, you know, <laughs> do pre-season tours are where we get the best access, so we always try and go to them. And that's not just a blag to get kind of nice holidays in the summer. It's it's true. It's 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 worth us because the players have got a bit more time and everything's a bit more relaxed. And you know, not everyone sort of goes over really until we try and go. But in those early days, I remember you know literally sitting in the in the hotel reception, you know, all day just waiting for the press officer to come back to harass him and stuff like that. You know, it what but but once once you get something, you know, and you do a good job and you show you can kind of be trusted and. The, the players enjoy doing our stuff as well and the manager as well. And I think that makes a big difference. You know, I think there's something to be said for um, just pressing record, having a chat and then pressing stop and putting the whole thing out. And and that's that's what the beauty of podcasts really is. You know, no one can ever complain about being misquoted. No one can ever complain about, well, I didn't really mean that or, or they were looking for an angle. You know, it's a, it's a conversation that's recorded and put out for everyone to, to make their own judgments on. And so... You know, we're not particularly concerned about 
we, we just want to celebrate football and we just love football and it's a very positive kind of thing what we do and that's easy at the moment because the team are fantastic obviously but you know generally speaking we've kind of always been like that really we've always always been about that the football is meant to be a hobby it's meant to be the thing you do to forget about everything else that's going on good or bad and so so because we're a celebration of, of Liverpool and everything and, and I still love football as I still think the brilliance like they're the best of us, really. Do you know what I mean? I, st- I still, if I still see the, if I see the best footy player in our school, I'm a bit starstruck. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you still feel about ten years old when you meet players? And a second part of that: Have you ever asked Jurgen Klopp to just hold you? <laughs> no, I haven't. We've we've interviewed Jurgen Klopp three times, and 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 that's like formal interviews. We've we've been in his companies probably sort of, you know, I mean close to a dozen times more and yeah, he's he, he's just such a, you know, engaging person and just such a, you know, I mean all eyes are on him when he's in a room and whether he sort of realizes it or not. He's got this magnetism as any about him and he's everything you want him to be and more. And he's he's really supportive of what we do and stuff like that as well and and, and that's really nice. You know, he, he thinks, I think for Jürgen, when he came in, it was all about getting everyone on the same page and getting it, pulling everyone together. And I know, although that sounds obvious, um, it's actually quite a rare thing to, to, to say and mean, you know, we, you know, and, and so he's, he's tried to break down any, any barriers between the supporter base and, and, and the players. And, and obviously there needs to be kind of some to a certain extent, but at the same time, you know, he he he's encouraged a, a kind of a environment at Liverpool to to treat us the same way you treat, you know, the Liverpool Echo or, or Sky or kind of whatever really, and mm-hmm. and and that's kind of been really nice, really. So he's been a big part of 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 the kind of the greater kind of access that we've been able to get. And what about you with players in general? Are you managing to keep you calm? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, though, I'd, I'd never want to be. Um, like someone who didn't get excited when I saw a footballer, because then you've sort of lost something. Then, and so, so, so I'd, I'd always want to be a little bit giddy, really. And and as I say, because we're, we're supposed to be fan media, and, and no matter how professional you get, and no matter how you know big you get, or people you employ, or whatever, all the stuff I said before, you know, if you stop sort of being fan media, then 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 supporters will just go elsewhere for it. And so, so I'm quite happy that. You know that I st- when I go to the game, I'm more or less in the same seat I've always been in. Um, I got season ticket with my dad when I was ten. Um, luckily, my dad, my dad bought two se- season tickets for sort of for the family when I was ten. Uh, I think you've sat by me, haven't you? Or have you? Uh, have you always been in the way end? The way end, yeah. Yeah. Start, so, start with you in the Arkles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, but yeah. But since then, I've I've moved about. I've moved about six rows back because the, the sort of corporate offering has been expanded, if you like. So they've shoved us back a bit. But generally speaking, you know, I'm in the same seats, seat, and 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 sort of surrounded by a similar sort of people uh, because, unfortunately, our fan base is very much aging one. Um, you know, since since then, really, and so, so I've. I've it's, it's, I think it's important for, for us and for all of us to like you sort of keep that. So, so yeah, look, if, 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 if we are on a rare occasion, we are invited to Melwood and, and, you know, Mo Salah walks past, um, I'm a teenage, I'm a teenager <laughs> again, um, you know, a teenage girl that take that concert and I'm, and I'm, I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly fine with that. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. 
please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. Okay, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.